Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to a special one-off review. Today I am reviewing Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. Now I just recently reviewed Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So I thought why not go back 10 years and review The Lost Boys, which is one of my favorite movies to watch during the summer. I was introduced to this movie as a teenager at a friend's house and it's just always stuck with me ever since I saw it and it's one I've just returned to year after year. So I thought now's the perfect time to review it since I just reviewed Schumacher's other two movies which I revisited after probably not seeing those movies for well over a decade or more, maybe even two decades, I don't even know. But The Lost Boys is one I've always enjoyed. So I thought, why not review it? Why not? Maybe you've never even heard of it. So I thought I can open this up to the listeners and, you know, we can start a conversation. We can explore this movie together. Well, if you're not already subscribed to Silver Screen Guide, you're going to want to click subscribe, click the like button, leave us a five star rating. Those are great free ways to help us out at Silver Screen Guide. If you're ready to jump straight into the review, timestamps are below. There's also some great curated content down there, links down there, tons of goodies down below you're not going to want to miss out on. So it's 1987, and if you have not heard your guide for The Lost Boys, I take you back to 1987. We talk about the movies, what kind of summer it was back then, the production, all of that's great. That came out last week. Go ahead and check that out. That's the first link below. Back in 87, would I want to see this movie? If I was old enough, mind you, this movie is rated R. So I would have had to have found someone to go take me if I wasn't old enough already, which we'll talk about it. This movie is not a hard R rating. I saw this movie uh, before I was legally allowed to watch an r-rated movie and it is not is a very tame r-rated film but the trailer starts kind of with the narration voice i thought that was interesting it loses it throughout the rest of the trailer it looks exciting but it's not a great trailer this is back when they're trying to figure out how to make trailers intriguing to people I still would go see it, though. I would be one of those people at the theaters, especially because this is a summer movie. It looks fun. It looks like something fun to go take a date with. Maybe not necessarily to go watch it with your guy friends, but I still think this looks like a good date type of movie. So I would be there in the theaters. Listeners, if you have not seen The Lost Boys and you don't want the film spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. I believe as of the time of this recording, it is streaming on Showtime. Um, It's not really on any other major streaming platform. Actually, despite this being a Warner Brothers production, like a Warner Brothers distributed movie, I think it's been on HBO Max. It's been around the block, but it is available for digital or physical to pick one of those up. But go ahead and watch it. Come back here and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Brothers Michael and Sam moved to Santa Carla, California with their recently divorced mother, Lucy. 
They move in with their eccentric grandpa, who may know more than he lets on. Quickly, the two brothers get caught up in the dangerous nightlife the boardwalk has to offer. Michael falls in with David and his goons, and Sam makes fast friends with the Frog Brothers. Michael unwittingly becomes a vampire, and Sam and the Frog Brothers must figure out a way to save him while destroying the creatures of darkness plaguing their town. So the opening for this film is brilliant, actually. There's actually two openings. The first is the theme, Thou Shalt Not Fall, which does set the tone of the movie. It's kind of this eerie tone that's almost otherworldly tone, like we're coming into something, you know, we're not quite prepared for. We first see David and his vampire goons causing trouble on this boardwalk. As the camera sweeps over the Pacific Ocean, you see this boardwalk, this light, this place that's supposed to be fun. As the theme continues to play, it fades out, and his goons are you know, being hassled by a security guard, by, you know, maybe a rival gang. We're not quite sure what is going on. There's very little dialogue. We just know that we're being thrown into a contentious situation. We then see the security guard walking to his car. And then just the camera swoops over him, causing terror of some kind, which um, actually reminds me of Suspiria a little bit. It also reminds me of the 40s and 50s horror movies, you know, even monster movies that really couldn't depict a creature flying or something large, you know, due to budgetary constraints. And this is a low budget movie coming at them. So it, it's utilized to great effect. I'm very impressed with Schumacher and the cinematographer's choices here to really evoke those feelings of the older, you know, 40s and 50s movie while still modernizing it in this kind of eccentric 80s fashion. Now, the second opening is another, you know, swoop across the ocean, but it's daytime, and we're introduced to the protagonists instead of the antagonists. It's a family moving in with Grandpa. Of course, we have some great songs. They're cover songs. Uh, some of them are. One of them is by Journey, actually. But um, it's the People Are Strange song, By the Doors, and it's just not quite a montage, but it's just, you know, shots of everyday life of this place they're moving into. And on the back of the Welcome to Santa Carla billboard, it says murder capital of the world. So clearly this family is moving from Arizona into something very bizarre. Grandpa actually doesn't live in the town proper. He lives up in the hills above it. But we realize this is kind of a dark and weird neverland. Clearly, the title, The Lost Boys, evokes J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Peter Pan was the leader of The Lost Boys, a group of boys that never grew up. They left their families and they traveled to Neverland. I'm also getting a lot of Pleasure Island from Pinocchio, where it seems, you know, nice on the surface, but on the underbelly, it is this really kind of disgusting place they do a fantastic job with the cinematography here. You feel the humidity. You feel the sweat. You feel the sand between your toes. There's just a lot of smoke in the air. It just feels like this grimy, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah almost kind of place. But there is definitely an allure to it as well. I mean, it's a boardwalk theme park type place. But these characters are attracted to the nightlife. But you do also see the dark underbelly. There's a lot of missing children posters. A lot of these signs are posted up, seeming like 
not a great place to raise your family. And of course, just seeing these posters, of course, these children are literally lost. There's a lost children. We're also introduced to the character Max, played by the phenomenal Edward Herman. And Diane Diane West, who had just won the Oscar recently as Lucy. You can tell that Max is, after seeing the movie, he is the leader. In some ways, he is the Peter Pan, and you don't even realize it. And Lucy is going to be their new mother. He even says that these boys need a mother, just like Peter felt that way about Wendy. Now, this isn't just a dark horror movie. There's also plenty of comedy. It's it's dark comedy, mind you. And a lot of the creators or even studio execs were really worried. How are we going to strike such a dark humor without making it campy or cheesy or making it just feel too clashy? They really do a fantastic job hitting those beats at the right moments. Uh, For instance, when they pull up to Grandpa's house, Grandpa is just lying on his porch. It's hot outside. Maybe he passed out from heat stroke. Maybe he had a heart attack. And Sam says, if Grandpa's dead, can we move back home? That is definitely morbid humor, but it's funny in the moment, and Grandpa always rolls with the punches. Something that really is great about this movie is that nothing is over-explained. Maybe some people feel like there should be a little bit more telling. There's plenty of showing. We don't necessarily dig too deep into these characters' backstories. Um, The lines that are cleverly dropped do explain these characters may have fallen on hard times. We don't know where these people have come from. We don't know why Laddie and Star, who are not brother and sister, have fallen in with David and his crew, especially why they have a child working with them. There's just this weird sense of, you know, we don't know what's going on with these characters, but I really appreciate the film. It's a brisk 97 minutes, including credits. It doesn't get bogged down in the details. We really just go for the story. There's also a lot of themes of the fall of innocence, where Lucy is a mom that wants to be protective of her children. Sam is still taking bubble baths. He's still reading comic books. You know, he's still is pretty much firmly planted in the world of innocence where Michael is transitioning out of that. He wants to ride his motorcycle. He might want to experiment with drugs. He gets involved in some very dangerous activities. And ultimately, that's shown through the lens of becoming a vampire, transitioning. You know, instead of going through puberty, he's going through some supernatural puberty into being a vampire. They do evoke some classic films in this as well. I mentioned in your guide to The Lost Boys that Jordan Peele took influence from this, but this took influence from other movies as well. The motorcycle chase sequence definitely evokes Rebel Without a Cause, where they're driving and they're trying to play chicken, who's going to drive their car over the cliff into the ocean. This definitely gave me that vibe, and I'm sure, you know, this is so, you know, Michael's trying to be James Dean, he's trying to be Mr. Cool. There's definitely some religious, you know, undertones to this as well. Of course, the thou shalt not theme. Also, when Michael's drinking the blood, it's an unholy communion. You know, Christians believe, you know, the communion unites them with Christ. This drinking of the blood unites them with the Prince of Darkness. It's uh, subtle, but at the same time, I appreciate what they're going for. There's also great editing in this movie. They talk a lot about, you know, the cinematographer, the writer, the director. 
The editor definitely deserves props too. The way he is able to move this movie along, he's able to use song. He's able to almost use montage sequences. They're not quite montages. They're just the same sequence with images superimposed over each other. But it really does give you this feeling of a loss of time, a otherworldliness. For instance, when Michael and Star consummate their relationship after that, it immediately just shows like a flight through the clouds. Are we to believe that they're flying through the clouds? I don't know, but we are to believe this is more so metaphorical imagery. This to me seems beyond a film of what I would expect this caliber to produce. Now, mind you, it is produced, executive produced by Richard Donner, but Joel Schumacher isn't, hasn't been behind the camera too much. Now, he just did St. Elmo's Fire, which is a bit of a mixed bag for me, but he's shown that he can handle this kind of movie. And I think with the help of a lot of other people behind him, he really does take it to the next level. I mean, I can give props to everyone in this movie. I think everybody really does bring their A-game. But Jason Patrick as Michael has always been a favorite performance of mine. He can play frightened. He can play cool. He can play tough when he fights David at the end, which David, of course, is played by one of my favorite actors, Kiefer Sutherland. He does a phenomenal job, even though he has very few lines. He has an incredible screen presence. I should also mention um, Alex Winter plays Marco. He had just graduated from acting school, I believe. Uh, he Everybody just oozes presence in this film. Now, getting back to that R rating that I did mention at the beginning of the podcast, our first instance of real violence, which is, it is teased, it's edited around, you do see some gushing blood, but it is 62 minutes into the film. It's more of a terrifying theme to the movie is just this loss of innocence, just the whole surroundingness, what's going on. Now, when they do eat the surf Nazis, when they do feed and we get to see these great makeup effects and their, you know, evil transformation, I love the way that David and the rest of the vampires are shot. It, it is so creepy the way the lighting is shot. There's almost this like smoky reddish orange light. It's probably one of the best looking sequences in the film. It, it's phenomenal. Now, a lot of this is shot on location, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention their lair. It's this really kind of, like I said, creepy, you know, Pleasure Island, Neverland, abandoned type of carnival, but it's this cave that's actually, I believe it's a sinkhole where the old part of town used to be, the old place where it's happening, and, you know, they've made it this dilapidated bizarre looking cave it really is a great set the writers do get creative with turning the vampire motifs on their head where they show a vampire in a mirror they throw water on a vampire and a lot of this stuff isn't working even garlic and that's because they've invited the vampire into their home playing with their expectations also saves a surprise for the end of the film that max is in fact the head vampire that's also a very fun sequence the dinner scene i found to be really funny but I like how they do get creative with the vampire stuff here. Of course, I couldn't finish this review without mentioning the Frog Brothers. Edgar Frog is played by Corey Feldman, and Jameson Newlander is Alan Frog. Of course, Corey Feldman always sticks out to me. He's a very fun childhood actor. He was in The Goonies, a Richard Donner production previous to this. 
And I think that's probably what helped get him cast is this was originally envisioned as Goonies, but with vampires. These two are kind of fun Rambo-like characters, you know, running around where they do know that there are vampires going on. They don't really have any proof. They've never dealt with these creatures of the night before. But the way they, they still act like kids, you know, they have this hard exterior, but there still is this, you know, we're running around with our water guns playing pretend. And they go to the church during a christening or baptism or something to, to grab some holy water. It's pretty hilarious. Now, there is a big climactic fight at the end. It's a little bit Home Alone-esque. Now, Home Alone came out after this film, but they do prepare these booby traps of all kind. It's definitely just loads of fun to watch. There's also this crazy red light. I think it's coming from Grandpa's room where he skins animals or something. He creates, you know, these skeletal heads of them. The deaths are over the top. They are a lot of fun, though, but it's just really that red light. It is that fight between David and Michael. And once David's body, you know, is exhumed or whatever, it's just released from its evil curse. And then when they fight Max, it's just all a lot of fun. And of course, I think the ending of this movie is perfect. I don't think they could have ended it any other way. Grandpa goes to the kitchen to get a drink and he says, you know, the one thing I couldn't stomach about Santa Carla is all the darn vampires. And he knew about it all along. And the whole family gives him this incredulous look as it fades out on their faces as Credits roll, and I believe we get the People Are Strange song once again. And it's just a really fun way to finish the film. And it just per perfectly caps off, you know, good wins, good versus evil. This is still lighthearted and fun. This isn't some crazy tragic story. These characters win. These characters achieve something great. Honestly, this is how more stories should be. It's simple yet exciting. It's not trying too hard. There was actually 15 minutes cut out of this film. And while it's fun to see, you know, additional scenes, you could just tell they made the right choice by just getting to the point of the story. But everybody still has plenty of time to get their due. I don't feel like any of these characters are really short shrift. I know Kiefer Sutherland as David is a fan favorite. The other three vampires have next to no lines, but they just serve their purpose. I think if they would talk more, I think it really would ruin they're just kind of nefarious presence. I will say the one thing that I do find disappointing with this movie is Michael and Star's relationship. I guess they're supposed to be star-crossed lovers. It's love at first sight. Clearly she wants, you know, Michael, who seems kind of like a strong, capable man to oppose David, and she's like under David's spell, I suppose, but then they have this lovemaking sequence that just really seems out of nowhere. It just seems too soon. So if anything, I would have appreciated building up their relationship a bit more. It's not really given enough screen time, I think. The Lost Boys is one of my favorite summer movies. From its opening theme, Thou Shalt Not Fall, sweeping over the Pacific Ocean, seeing the eye-catching title, and finally, this dark Neverland. From beginning to end, I'm captivated by Joel Schumacher's great 80s vampire film. Featuring great performances all around, an amazing crew behind the camera, and an engaging quick story, The Lost Boys does it right. Instead of treating it like a low-budget film, 
Everyone gives their best effort to elevate this movie into something special, and it shows. Ever since I saw it as a young teenager, it's always stuck with me. I'm happy to introduce it to others and revisit it every year. The Lost Boys receives 8 stars out of 10 with a strong recommend. So according to my log on my Blu-ray.com app, I did get this movie around May 28th, 2019. So I've owned it on Blu-ray for a couple years. That summer, I just knew it. I needed The Lost Boys. It wasn't streaming. It's never really been streaming. Very easy to find on the internet. So I wanted the physical copy. Plus, it comes with tons of great bonus features to check out. So I'm really happy with the Blu-ray. Of course, if they ever put out a 4K, which I think is definitely a possibility, I would take a look at that one. I'd, I'd be curious to see how this film looks. It probably would look great. So some other movie recommendations I have for you after you watch this one, Fright Night. That's the that's a very kind of close thing to this. It's a little bit more campy, but it's still a heck of a lot of fun. Um, Fright Night came out in 1985, so it actually came out you know, roughly two years before this film. I'm also going to be recommending The Burbs, which is close, but not really supernatural, but it's still, it also is another uh, movie starring Corey Feldman that came out in 89, so two years after this film. Uh, I think you'll have a blast with that one. I love that movie. I'm also going to be recommending Halloween from 1978. There's definitely some similar vibes to this i would say as far as some of the like low budget horror goes and my final kind of bonus recommendation if you're looking for something a little bit more lighthearted, even though i'll say fright night is fairly lighthearted, and so is the burbs home alone yeah i mean i can definitely see home alone got some ideas from this movie trying to stop the bad guys with booby traps coming into your house now there were talks about a sequel for this film now, Corey Feldman says it would be the Frog Brothers working in Washington, D.C. There were a lot of wink-wink political vampires, and you know they would be rooting them out of our nation's capital. Joel Schumacher did want to do a sequel. He wanted to do The Lost Girls, where it would mostly be the same film, but just with a girl motorcycle gang instead of a guy motorcycle gang. He thought that was a great idea. I don't think that that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. It doesn't sound unique whatsoever for a sequel. He did really try and push to get it made. I think it was still roughly 10 years ago he was trying to go for it. Corey Haim, on the other hand, didn't ever want a sequel made to The Lost Boys because he felt it would ruin the original. I'm on board with that sentiment. But they did finally make a sequel to it. Now, it did follow the Frog Brothers as uh, far as I know, it is its new own story. It didn't really pick up with any other story. Uh, now, I have not seen it. I don't plan on seeing it. It has really awful ratings. It's called Lost Boys the Tribe. It came out in 2008. So it, it came out, you know, over two decades after this one. It was straight to video. And that was followed up by another film, Lost Boys the Thirst. That just came out two years after Lost Boys, The Tribe, and it's direct-to-video as well. So if anybody's ever curious and wants to continue on with the Frog Brothers, you are welcome to do that. Corey Feldman and Jason Newlander do reprise their roles. There was actually a comic book made 
with David coming back, he didn't die, of course, and he does return in the comic book. There was talks of a live action sequel with him coming back. If they ever do a live action sequel, which I don't think they will, and it does come to theaters, it would really, really have to be something special. I, I, they could do it. They definitely could do it. But as for right now, I just don't think we need a sequel to this film. Well, listeners, the question after the show, do you have a favorite cult 80s movie you like to watch during the summer? This one's mine. I'm curious what yours is. Make sure to email me your response at silverscreenguide95 at gmail.com if you want your answer read on the show or go ahead and comment wherever you are listening. Thank you, listeners, for coming along with me on my review for The Lost Boys. We're still going to stay in the 80s. I feel like summer is a great time to revisit the 80s. We're going to be reviewing all, that is right, all of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. I own like half of them on Blu-ray. I've only ever seen the first one and then the CGI TMNT. Very curious to um to take a deep dive into that franchise. So you're not going to want to miss that review. Make sure to click subscribe right now, no matter where you are at. Cowabunga dudes, I'm going to see you next week with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But thanks for joining me on my review of The Lost Boys and catch you next time. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.